Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Forest Spirituality with me, Julie Brett. Today I've got an interview for you with Luke Eastwood. He's the author of the new book, The Druid Garden. We're going to be having a chat about that and some of the other things that he does. And uh, he's also a musician, so I've got a little bit of his music to head you on into the next episode at the end of the interview. Enjoy. So hi everyone, I've got Luke Eastwood today with me having an interview. He's uh, author of many different books and a writer of lots of different articles on his website uh, on various topics around druidry, environmentalism, social and political issues, the economy, horticulture, spirituality more generally and all kinds of other things. He's an artist, a musician and a poet. He's a druid and has been for many years and lives and practices in Ireland. He's re recently released a new book called The Druid Garden. So, Luke, congratulations on your new book release. Would you like to tell us a bit about it? Uh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, thanks for that nice introduction. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the book. I, I had done a previous book. Um, which was sort of a, I suppose, what you call a 101 book on Druidism. And I, I wanted to go into some different areas. Uh, in that first book, I talk about trees and plants a bit, but it's not in any kind of depth in a practical sense of actually working with plants and trees. There's stuff about home and all that kind of thing. But uh, I didn't actually go in to any kind of horticultural stuff. I suppose that, you know, in a general book, you're not going to get into uh, that kind of stuff. What was the first book called? Was that The Druid's Primer or a different one? The Druid's Primer. Yeah. That's more so, of a historical one, right? Yeah, it's got a lot of general uh, historical information about Druid's. A lot of it's Irish stuff, but not all of it. So um, that was sort of like a compendium of sort of all, all the stuff I've studied and learned sort of distilled down into sort of, a, well, not everything, but a lot of the useful stuff that, especially for beginners, I thought would be good to have. But, um, you know, that doesn't really kind of touch on gardening at all. So that's a big interest for me. And I actually trained as a horticulturist. And I did feel that, you know, in my travels, I've noticed that, you know, as a lot of people in, in the pagan movement who, you know, not, not very good at gardening. <laughs> and maybe in some cases they got like nothing, just like a patch of, grass and nothing growing at all I was kind of quite surprised to see that you know because it's very much you know an earth-based religion and respect and love of the earth but I thought well you know for people that feel that way but don't have any um, understanding about the garden maybe could do with a bit of help and then the other hand you've got gardeners who really are not at all spiritual in their approach they're quite happy to get out the old glyphosate and spray spray it all over the place mm. and you know there's a kind of disconnect between you know the, the hands and the, the heart you know so people are maybe doing gardening without thinking about sort of the more kind of um holistic aspects of it and then on the other end of it, the spiritual people who are, they're really into the idea of the earth, but they don't have the practical skills. So I thought, well, how could I bring that together? And that's very much the idea of the Druid Garden is to kind of meld these two things, a very practical approach to gardening with the kind of spiritual understanding of it. Awesome. Yeah, it's a... It's a really practical book. You you get into horticulture a great deal in there. Is uh, I guess you've, you've got lots of lists of different trees and plants and um, and food plants and there, there's not a whole lot of like overtly spiritual information in there. It's 
probably a lot more the side of the um, the practical aspects of things. Was that was the focus there in in bringing those practical aspects to the Druidry community? Then is that what the focus was in doing that? Yeah. Well, what I've done, I have included like uh, folklore and sort of spiritual magical uses as well but that's not the main focus because I mean there's loads of books uh you know on ohm that cover this already there's lots of herbalism books that cover this already so although I've put quite a, a lot of that information in I've uh focused on like how to cultivate the plants how to grow them from seed how to look after them mm. and you know, the various things you can use them for in a practical sense, like, you know, for instance, basket weaving or whatever, you know, um, because I felt that that was something that was missing from all these other books. They, they didn't really help you. Say, for instance, you thought you, you've been reading about the, you know, uh, the birch tree in home and its various magical uses and this and that but it wouldn't tell you anything about you know where what would i do about getting one of these trees and how would i look after it yeah. and that's kind of a step further i wanted to push people towards is that well if you're interested in say for instance the home trees why not why not plant them or some of them or, or even all of them in your if you've got the space to do it but then you know i do realize a lot of people might live in an apartment and they don't have a garden even. So I've tried to also put in suggestions about how you could uh, sort of bring the world of plants into your, into that, into your small apartment. Or for instance, if you've got a balcony, you, you can make a lot of use of that. Mm. And if, um, have you got your own garden? Or yeah. Have you always um, had a garden? Well, when I grew up, uh, we had a garden and I used to help out with the vegetables and things a bit reluctantly. I had a little vegetable garden for a while, which I neglected horribly. And I think we had a super drought that one particular year, which led to pretty much everything dying. I remember I had sweet corn. It was all withered and kind of desiccated looking because, you know, I just didn't have the focus to you know, go and check on it, bring daily and, you know, so it was a bit of a disaster, really. I think my dad took that patch back off me because it was so, such a disgrace. <laughs> but like, I was only like six or seven years old. So, you know, that's oh, kind of normal. You corn actually grow at six or seven. That's pretty good. Even if it did wilt. <laughs> but um, I did get various kind of um, gardens sort of, I lived in a lot of rented places. One particular place where I really got into the gardening again was in North London in a walled garden, which had just totally neglected. Um, you know, nobody cared about it. It was a shared house, you know, uh, which split up into different apartments. And I had the top floor with one of my friends. And, um, you know, but I, I asked the other residents about the garden. And he said, oh, yeah well, we don't really care, so just do whatever you want. So I did, you know. And then actually, once it was nice, people started actually going out in it and using it a little bit, sit out and things. Um, what, did you do? what was it like before you transformed the space? Did you well, I just, it was old, you know. I noticed it had a really old cherry tree in it, um, which was huge. Um and just sort of some nice plants hidden under all the briars and, and you know, there was just masses of weeds and stinging nettles and kind of all kinds of random stuff. That you, that's what happens if you just leave it totally to nature. It will reclaim what was a garden and turn it into sort of a, a bit of a jungle. Yeah. Um, but I do remember that cherry tree, uh, thinking of it now, was... Um, I remember it producing like loads of lovely red cherries and I looked out the window. I could sit, look down from um, the top floor and see the cherry tree there and said, mm, nice. When I get home from work, I'm going to pick all those cherries. 
And I got home and the birds had stripped the tree. Okay. I think there was like one, one left. That was about <laughs> it. <laughs> I was really annoyed. But I suppose birds are going to do what they do. And, you know, they're as entitled to eat the cherries as I am. So I guess I was just too slow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, at that point in your life, were you, were you good at gardening already? Or like, had you started, or like, where did the spark come from? Was it earlier in life or, or was that sort of a moment of change for you? When did you start um, learning about horticulture and things like that? Well, I think I kind of picked up stuff maybe subconsciously from my parents. So what obviously I watched them do stuff. So some of it must have just sunk in. I seem to have like natural kind of green fingers. It's kind of a funny thing, really. I think, you know, I think everyone has affinities for certain things. Like some people are like really good at music or, or brilliant at maths or you know, on a spiritual sense, people might have particular skills, like, you know, people might be clairaudient or something. Not everyone has all, you know, the same skills or, you know, very few people have all these different skills. Um, but I just seem to have a kind of a feel for, for plants and found it kind of easy to, to look after them fairly much. Although I didn't really know a whole lot um, about things, particular plants and plant names and particular techniques for looking after them. That came a bit later. I, um, I got a house in Wexford in the east coast of Ireland and it was sort of pretty much a, a ruined garden really, more of a field more than anything. But it was, there'd been loads of stuff dumped in it like you know, a big oil barrel full of machine parts. And I found a huge pit full of nappies and, and this and that, you know. So it was pretty awful, but I got rid of all, all the rubbish and then started planting things. I planted a big grove of trees in the back. So I think I, think I planted about maybe around a a hundred trees in the grove and then around the edge of the whole property, maybe in 250 trees. Wow. Must be quite a big property then. How, it, was how big big. it was around half an acre. Oh, right. That's so, I mean, that's trees for that side of the property though, isn't it? It is. They were quite, quite uh, closely planted, probably more close than like would be recommended, but. Right. Is that where you live now? No. Right. I, I don't live in that place anymore. But I mean, that was sort of my, I'd done some smaller experiments in, in sort of tree planting and groves before. This is a bit more ambitious. And where I live now, I have a really small garden, actually. Right. And that's one of the things that made me think about small spaces and the fact that I'd gone from this huge garden, which was south facing to I've got a tiny garden, which is north facing behind the place. So it's really damp and it's dark and there's a field behind with a wall and the water comes through the field in down the wall and into the garden. So it's kind of almost like a swamp. So <laughs> it's not ideal. So I've, there's some, you know, some nice stuff in there. Uh, some ferns and hydrangeas can do okay in sort of, partial shade and they don't mind the damp too much but I mean there's a lot of plants don't do well so out the front of the house I've got a load of fish boxes as I live in a fishing town it's a small fishing town so I managed to get a load of broken uh, damaged fish boxes which are I don't know they're about uh, about a foot or 30 centimeters deep which is big enough that you can grow quite a lot of vegetables mm -hmm. and I've also got you know ornamental plants in pots um, and it's surprising how much you can do that way so um, yeah the front of the house doesn't have any garden but it's all south facing so uh, along that side of the house and around the uh, the west side of the house I've got all most of the plants 
But, um, you know, I'm planning to hopefully do another sort of big project uh, in the future, you know, with a piece of land and create a forest, create wild spaces. And, and a lot of the stuff I've talked about in the book, I'll be doing that again. In fact, I'm often doing that for customers going and reclaiming their uh, half abandoned or ruined gardens and turning it into something uh, a lot nicer. Wow. So, so you work as, is that the goal of your work at the moment to do that sort of restoration work for people's gardens or do you say well, that you work as a horticulturalist as well as being a writer and all the other things you do? Is that right? Well, I suppose technically I've got three jobs. I've got like a part-time job, which is sort of gives me some basic income. And then I do the horticulture stuff from really spring through to the end of autumn because right. there's very few requests for work over the winter. You might get one or two, like to go in and tidy up uh, some messes and things. But, um, you know, the bulk of the work here uh, is going to be from sort of March through to October. Uh, you see, we get a lot of storms here. So right. during that sort of season about four or five months or so when it's constant storms there's really not a lot of point in doing uh anything other than sort of uh structural work or tidying up you know yeah. because if you if you just plant things during that time they're going to get really um badly damaged and unless of things like planting bare root trees that's something you can do over winter Right. In fact, that's when you would do it generally between sort of like November through to March is when you 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 ideally going to plant trees. Hmm. And, and uh, these gardens that you're you're working on and, and doing this this these jobs with are they are they sometimes druid people that get you to come and work for them? Or um, are they, are they... Generally not. I have got one customer who is a druid. And we have some interesting chats about uh, all that. And she's very into the whole organic stuff. And she totally gets everything I'm talking about. With some of the other people, they might need a bit of convincing uh, about how things should be done. I mean, in the past, I've had problems with some customers or that, that really wanted you to do terrible stuff. Uh, and in some cases, I've objected to doing it if I just thought it was wrong. Um, and then when I worked in a garden centre, sometimes people would ask you really unreasonable questions about how to kill stuff off, uh, you know, on a large scale even. And um, yeah, I can remember I, I used to work for um, a big hotel group and I had a golf course and one of the I think the boss's son, he had this big piece of land and um, he was going to fix it all up. But then in the end, he decided he couldn't be bothered and he just sprayed the whole lot with Roundup to then just start again. Wow. I just thought, oh, I just wanted to cry. It was just so stupid and lazy as well. Um, you know, rather than putting the effort in to try and, you know, uh, sort out what you wanted to get rid of, what you wanted to keep, what could be nurtured. He just just ravaged the whole place. It's just like letting off a nuclear bomb in the garden. Yeah. And and the damage there to the soil and and the water and everything, isn't it? And yeah. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a horticulturist. I, I work in a garden a little bit and I have my own back garden, but yeah, we're still organic. So we don't even I don't even know what the effects are really. Um other than having a little bit of a look around it and researching it. But for people who don't know what the effects are, like why, why do we want to have um, chemical-free gardening or, or very low chemical gardening as druids? Well, I, I think this works on many levels, uh, um, not just for a druid, but the fundamental really is that... Um, it, it gets in the water, as you said, and that will be ingested by other creatures. It will be ingested by people. If you test anybody's urine in sort of most countries, 
there's a uh, there's glyphosate in it you know because roundup and glyphosate which is the main ingredient in it uh, is used so much that it ends up in the water table it ends up in all the water that animals drink that we drink and then you know we're passing it out in our own urine you know it's in so many foodstuffs it's in bread um and this is they've proven this is uh a very likely carcinogen mm. um i don't want to say too much i don't want uh, anyone suing me but uh, you know there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it is um that it's is carcinogenic to humans and then when you think about it on um on a different level as well it's it's extremely damaging to the whole environment not just humans it does massive damage to insect populations you look at the bees how they suffered and uh, you know butterflies as well all these pollinators are so vital to our existence they're being wiped out and you know um birds as well they'll eat insects that have got contaminated and they're getting poisoned by it too so this goes back not just sort of um, recently but this has been going on for a very long time pesticides were developed sort of in this sort of aftermath of the first world war and then they got more sophisticated a very famous one which got banned is ddt because it turned out to be so toxic that wiped out millions of birds and insects I mean, now bird populations across the world, you know, they never really recovered from that in the 60s. They're still getting damaged by um, industrial agriculture. And I mean, if, if you care about the environment, then it kind of makes sense if you want to be organic. And then, you know, for Druid people, it's sort of like taking environmentalism to a higher level where it's got a spiritual aspect to it rather than just caring about the environment. It's sort of part of the philosophy of Druidism that you kind of regard the world as a sacred place. Um, a lot of people would call themselves animists where they kind of see the presence of God or deity in, in everything, every living thing in the whole world around us. So, you know, by disrespecting the natural world in that way you're um you're disrespecting everything sacred including deity by going around spraying all the stuff everywhere yeah um, so there's so many aspects to it. selfish sort of way of looking at it isn't it like um just i i want it to be how i want it to be i don't know rather mm. than thinking about the whole the the needs of the community of nature i suppose do you think yeah, it's very short term thinking as well, you know, because, you know, the knock on effects take a little while to happen. You know, you go and you spray a bank with weeds on it, but you don't see the knock on effects of that, the, the negative results of what you've done. Uh, but it does filter through. And that's half the problem with a lot of way, the way a lot of people think. Uh, they're very short term in their thinking and they don't have an awareness of the, of the repercussions of what they're doing. You know? These companies don't actually want to publicize the fact that there's lots of negative impacts from their products. So they actually, if anything, try to hide it because they want you to go out and buy their product they've advertised. So the last thing they want is for you to realize that uh, it's having a very negative detrimental effect on you know, not just the weeds, but the whole ecosystem and your own life as well. I mean, no one wants, to, you know, if you said to somebody, would you like to um, put some of this Roundup on your on your breakfast? <laughs> They're going to go, no, thank you. I said, well, you've already got some. It's in it already. You know, <laughs> for most people, if you if you don't buy organic food or grow your own food, you are guaranteed to be eating a small amount of this glyphosate and probably other pesticides as well. Yeah. Do you think that um, 
uh, gardening philosophies like permaculture um, or regenerative agriculture um, are going to be able to help us with that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a movement that's grown up really since the 70s. It's getting bigger, organic gardening as well. The, the whole kind of um, uh, change of mindset away from the Green Revolution and, and industrial agriculture. Um, it's really got its roots in forest gardening, which is really ancient. It was probably one of the most archaic forms of gardening that there is. And um, it's great it's beginning to make a comeback because, I mean, we really need that. You know, you go to some places, you can go to parts of America and you just see endless fields of one crop. The same thing has happened in France in the recent decades and probably other countries too. And it's so, so bad for, for the planet. It's bad for all, all life, really. Uh, it may make a profit, but it's, you know, it, it's so short-sighted. It's like you're shooting yourself in the foot, really, by going down this road. Okay, uh, a farmer may, may make more money in the short term that way, but they're going to end up with completely destroyed farm in the long run. That's not viable for anything at all. Mm. And so I think it's really important getting back to these methods, which means you can make a sustainable life that you can keep going forever and ever, really. And um, are there any are there any people in the world that you think are really doing it right, or that that you're inspired by seeing what they're doing, or any any places or gardens or farms or things that that you think that's awesome? They're really doing it the way that we should all be doing it. Well, there's a guy. There's a called Hugh Lovell. He's in the permaculture and biodynamic movement. He's a really interesting guy. It's quite complicated, some of what he's talking about, but um, he does do courses on this. He travels all over the world doing this. I very much like the biodynamic approach. That's great. Um, and I think some countries have really taken that off, take, you know, to, to, to build it up. India, it's actually an area where they've, um, they've embraced uh, biodynamics in, in a lot of um, tea plantations and places like that, a lot of farms there. Uh, maybe a lot more than Europe where, where, by, where it comes from. Um, but you said about places that I found um, inspiring. Well, I remember before I really got into the horticulture that much, I went used to go to Kew Gardens in West London. It's really beautiful. I really have a great memory of going there in February. I think it was, it was really cold. And it was just like all oh, a field of crocuses, all you know, all different colored crocuses coming out through the grass and absolutely beautiful, really impressive. And they've got all kinds of amazing specimens from all over the world. I found that just really um really inspiring. I mean, that wouldn't be sort of a a permaculture place it would be um, quite conventional in terms of gardening but I think they've embraced more of these ideas in recent years I haven't been there for oh gosh it must be 25 years since I last went there but um, I really remember that place as being very impressive but um, here in Ireland there's two places I really liked um, the National Botanical Gardens up in North Dublin. Uh, I used to go there as a student. I think every, I think it was every Saturday, um, we used to go there for a lesson. And um, that's a really nice place. And uh, they also had a really nice cafe too, which was great. So we'd all meet after the lesson and have, have lunch. So I've um, a lot of good memories about that place because there's so many plants you'd never see you get introduced to um you know they've got a uh, an impressive collection of plants from all over the place um but kind of a more in terms of a real sort of working garden would be 
Lismore Castle, the people that own that, um, they've got these beautiful gardens and they've kind of committed to sort of organic methods in how they're, they're running that place. And I think I, I've driven past it. I think last year was the first time I actually went because I've heard so many people talk about it. Um, and the castle itself is quite amazing looking, but the gardens just really blew me away. Um, it was just amazing. So I, you know, people are visiting Ireland or already live here. I, that's somewhere I definitely recommend visiting. Great. Um, and what would you say makes, uh, you know, not just a beautiful garden, but a druid's garden? What, what's the difference between a garden we can just appreciate and enjoy and something that we would call a druid's garden? Well, is there a difference even? There isn't really an official thing on that. I mean, we don't really know how much gardening druids were involved in back in the day or even how ancient Celtic people really gardened. There's no real documentation of that. Um, we do think from the archeology span that there were kind of sort of big circular areas for agriculture. So maybe strips like a, slices of pie that people had. Um, but in terms of actual druidry, I suppose you, there's several things that are, are of interest. Druids would have a, a grove like of trees where we would go and do their, you know, their spiritual work. So you'd probably want to have an area like that with a little clearing in it where you could stand in the trees. You probably want to have a decent herb garden because herbalism is a big part of Druidism. So using plants for medicinal and magical purposes. And um, you probably would want to grow food because very much sort of um, the older way of life, people always grew their own food. So that would be important. I mean, I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the ancient Druids actually didn't grow their own food. People maybe grew it for them because they'd be busy, you know, uh, plying their trade, I suppose, uh, in the different areas that they might specialize in. So they may not have actually had time themselves to grow food. So, and uh, you know, a lot of them are quite high level in society. They would have been, you know, perhaps too important to be going digging up uh, vegetables to bring in tears. <laughs> but who knows, maybe they did get their hands dirty. There's no real evidence of that. So a lot of it's the guesswork but one thing that does seem to be clear is um from the brehan law you've got an understanding of plants and trees which is very holistic and more in tune you kind of look at the later norman gardens which are their attitude is very much kind of classical derived from the sort of roman view very very, very practical, lots of straight lines, square plots, all mostly about getting maximum yield out of the land. So if you look at, say, somewhere um, like Ireland, they would have had records of a Norman manor uh, and what they produced and what was going on. So you have a good idea what they were doing like a thousand years ago. But then the Celtic areas, you don't have any records at all. So you've only gone, kind of got guesswork. They do know that, you know, uh, invading kind of armies sometimes stumbled across, you know, um, garden areas in the forest that obviously belong to um, the tribe. And unfortunately, you, war being what it was, they often set fire to them, burned, or, burned all their crops. But nobody actually took the time to write down detailed information about what, you know, what people were doing in terms of, um, of growing. Mm. I suppose it didn't seem relevant at the time. And, you know, there didn't seem to be any reason why you would do that. 
Yeah. I suppose within a or mostly oral culture, people transmitted this information from, you know, through the family. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of what I've written about is sort of um, a, a reconstruction, I suppose, of, of what we know about the past of what these people did understand married with more modern techniques, which are compatible, such as like permaculture, biodynamics, all the organic gardening methods. And what's been written down in sort of folklore and sort of um, books of sort of ancient sort of farming techniques, etc. So, um, so in that sense, you're seeing that is the title the title of the book, the Druids' Garden, sort of less about maybe. Uh, I mean, or is is it about creating a Druids' Garden today? And is there a difference between what that is compared to what we think of a Druids' Garden in the past? Like, what, yeah, what does a Druids' Garden look like today in comparison? Well, yeah, it's very much for today because we don't have a, a snapshot of what people did in, you know, even going back like to the 1500s, we don't know what um, uh, people in uh, the Celtic fringes of, say, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, what, what they were doing, you know, the ones that had not become part of of the uh, Anglo-Norman world, we don't know what they were doing. And if you go back further to the pre-Christian era, it's even less. We've only got archaeology to go on. We do know from, you know, the writings of which which trees, for instance, that were important, uh, particularly in Ireland, Mm. uh, the different classes of trees, and a lot of information about them. But I mean, that's there's what you've really got is pockets of information. Uh, mm. And those, um, those trees listed as bread and laws, are they, um, do we associate them directly with the Druids or are they just sort of peripherally associated because of cultural connection? Well, um, by the time it was written down, the Druids didn't exist, but the the kind of belief is that this is an inheritance from the Druidic era of the sort of Celtic system of law mm-hmm. that passed down and was still still existing at the end of the sort of the the Celtic um, um, dynasties, if you like. Mm. Um, is the Oem similarly related uh, the way that the Breton laws are? Well, Om is um, is it's a difficult one to summarize, but um, there's different opinions about how old it is. Some academics would say, "Oh, it only sort of came into existence about 400 AD and then disappeared again about eight nine hundred AD." I don't think that's true. I think there's evidence to suggest it's a lot older. The thing is, with stonework, it's hard to to date it. Exactly. So there's a lot of guesswork because you don't have any organic material on which to to work with. They've just kind of made an educated guess. But then you've got references to Ohm which relate to uh, events and characters which are well beyond the Christian period, going way back into pagan times. And you've got references to uh, gods and goddesses which are clearly pagan. So I think it's a lot older. It, I mean, Ohm is pri- primarily uh, an alphabet. It's a, a way of writing, which started out fairly small. I think it was um, maybe 10 or 14 characters originally, and then it grew up into a full alphabet. Um, mostly used for writing on s- stones or signs, but then it became also used for for writing on paper, you could actually uh, write things with it rather than just somebody's name. Um, and it's also associated very much with um, with horticultural knowledge in the form of, you know, 
um, trees. Arboriculture, I suppose, is, is the, um, the term for that. So um, most of the letters are directly associated with particular trees. Some of them are a bit more vague, but then there's sort of more of a poetic or um, connection rather than an actual literal. Mm. Um, but there's a whole sort of system of knowledge and lore associated with each, each letter. Uh, it's not something I've covered in great deal um, in this book. I have mentioned that, you know, where they are connected to Yom, I've, men I've mentioned that they are, but I haven't explored that in any depth because um, I've covered that in my earlier book, the, the, the Druid's Primer, which goes into Om quite a lot. And plus there's so many books on Om. Now, there, um, there's, in the last 20 or 30 years, there must be like dozens of books on Om that have come out. So I just didn't see any reason to, to, to cover that again when it's already something that's been explored, uh, you know, um, that, that would just make the book bigger without any real benefit to people. If you want to go off and study what Ohm is, uh, I'd suggest you go off and buy a book that's particularly about Ohm. Um, of course, it has a, an overlap with the trees and that, um, I actually created a garden of Ohm trees. In fact, there was, I met a guy in Waterford many years ago who'd done the same thing. He had all of the Ohm trees planted in a sort of um, large sort of spiral. So um, that, was, that was the first person I'd, I'd seen do that. It was... Um, uh, down in Waterford, that was in the the Ring Gale talk. And um, you so in this, I, I think that your choice to not just have the Owen, but to expand it into all sorts of other things like herbs and vegetables and different kinds of trees is wonderful. Um, because you know we can sort of get stuck on looking at just those Owen trees. It's lovely to see something that's much more broad. Um, what, how, but how did you possibly choose from all the plants that they were to look at, especially when you have an interest in places like Kew Gardens where they're looking at all sorts of exotic specimens? Like, how, how did you choose the ones that you did choose to put in there? Well, I thought about this quite a bit and I thought, well, if you look at um, Ohm, you've only got 25 possible uh, trees or bushes which isn't very many, you know? So usually what you get when a book that talks about the stuff, you're going to get 25 plants and that's it. So I thought, well, okay, that's very, very small. I mean, Ireland is kind of strange in that we don't have a huge number of native uh, trees because of its isolation being on the very Western edge of Europe. You know, there's a lot of plants that just, didn't end up here because it's an island next to another island and then you know the actual mainland of Europe is quite a distance off so um, I thought well what would be an appropriate area and I figured well the, the actual druids of old would have covered the whole British Isles you've gone down into sort of Spain all of Gaul which now comprises France and um, bits of um, um, of Italy and Belgium and even possibly the Netherlands across into into Germany as well. Uh, you assist Alpine Gaul is you know going into northern Italy, and then you've got across the Danube area where um, you had um, these two groups, which are famously migrated across Western Europe, supposedly. So I thought I'd take it as far as the Eastern regions of the Danube and anything that would fit in that area could be legitimate. So mm. uh, I picked the plants and um, trees from that region, which also includes the Mediterranean, 
because you think about Spain and France and Italy, they've all got Mediterranean coastline. So I've included plants from that region too. Right. And, and are any of them sort of ones that are personally significant to you or, or they, did you just try, like how, how did you pick them? You, you chose them from a big area or were you trying different kinds, sizes of trees or? Well, what I did is I tried to ignore my own preferences um, I, my favorite tree is actually a birch tree, actually. But, um, you know, I, I, I tried to not think about it on terms of what I, I actually personally like. I tried to look for plants that there's some evidence of a connection to, to either the Druids themselves or to Celtic peoples in general. Right. So got references of, you know, um, Celtic people using... Um, say hemlock that you go okay right i can use that uh and there's like for instance pliny took writing about Salago and the druids and things like that anytime i came across a reference i thought all right i can use this if it's got any kind of mythological or historical connection uh, then i included it right yeah, so it was i, I didn't understand like, that sorry so like, I didn't understand that about um, about how you chose them because being in Australia, I suppose there's an assumption that everything over there must have some kind of story. Um, but yeah, that's fascinating that that's how you chose them because you, with each each tree or plant, you've included information about those things, haven't you? Yeah, there's anywhere I could do. There was one or two plants where there wasn't very much at all that I could find, but I knew they would have been definitely there at that time and would have probably been uh, used and been known by these people. So even if there was only a tiny bit of information, I, I, I would put it in. I thought it was definitely relevant. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it would be nice, you know, to include like plants from all over the world, but I figured, well, I've got to cut it down somewhere. You know, I can't have an infinite list. So I, I had to be quite strict with myself about what was included and what the kind of criteria was. Hmm. Yeah, so in that sense, I suppose you like the Druid's garden that we're creating when we look at your book is, is one that in, got plants that are entwined with history. And, um, you know, the, the Celts and the Druids and things like that. That's really interesting. I mean, it's um, a bit of a challenge for us being in Australia where we, we don't always have the ability to grow those kinds of plants. But often Druids here do try to, um, to have a few meaningful plants from, from the motherlands, you know, um, mm. as well as looking at our local native things. But... Um, I don't know. Would you would you have any suggestions for people in, you know, outside of uh, the places where those plants are native to? What what should we be doing here? Would we um, look at it the same way that you would? Well, I think um, you know, there's two ways you could go about this. I mean, for instance, um, we've got a lot of eucalyptus trees in Ireland, which grow really well here. They're obviously from Australia. They don't actually belong here as such, but there's no reason why you can't have them. Um, and I would say, well, um, if you want to grow European plants in Australia, then why not? But then I would also think from a spiritual point of view that there's a lot of sense and um, in in working with the native plants of where you live of connecting with, um, with, with your own landscape. And I would have thought obviously the best people to talk to about that is probably Aboriginal people. They would know what their sacred plants are and, and which, which trees and plants are important to them. So mm. I think, you know, in a way you could kind of make a sort of fusion if you want of, you know, maybe using uh, European plants that you feel you connect with, and also 
um, finding out about the, the plants that are important in Australia and have a history with, with, with the people that have lived there for, well, for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, so, I mean, if I, if I was living in Australia, that's what I'd do. I'd try and find some wise Aboriginal person who knows about all the stuff and pick their brains about what plants to plant and, and which what they can be used for and what their significance is. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that we have all those different stories from the different places. We do have to be a little bit careful here with introduced species. They can run rampant sometimes, but there are some that, that are quite okay to grow. Um, so I also wanted to ask you about, about the pandemic and about how, how like um, in, in the book you mentioned um, the pandemic in the beginning and, and you were talking about gardening as, a, as something that a lot of people had turned to um, because of lockdown and things like that. And um, personally, I've had a really amazing journey with our local community gardens going volunteering there and spending time um, just gardening when it was making me feel a bit down. I just wondered what your thoughts were on um, creating gardens and working in garden spaces as um, as we're, we're struggling with that at the moment. Um, how can people use gardening as a way to, to get through the struggle? Oh, I think it can have a really powerful impact. I think uh, when you think of plants as living beings, then, you know, interacting with nature is very good for you. I mean, I'm very lucky here in that, you know, there's so much around me. I don't have to go very far from my front door to run into sort of the sea and mountains and all kinds of, uh, you know, ancient sites and beautiful stuff. But I mean, I used to live in a big city and I'm well aware that, you know, it could be quite oppressive if you, you know, you're locked into your apartment most of the time and you can't really interact with people or the natural world in the same way. So I think actually doing a bit of gardening and, you know, working with plants um, can be really beneficial for your mental health and just, of well, also for your physical health. Gardening is also really good for, you know, helping your um, you get exercise and getting out in fresh air and feeling the elements is really good for you too. But I mean, another aspect is like, if it's possible to sort of um, have a community garden, a shared allotment or a shared space, that's kind of a way of maybe people, maybe people be able to have some interaction and connection without having to be in the same building without having to kind of be right close up to each other. Cause obviously a lot of people are still fearful about, you know, passing um, this disease around. So, right. You know, it's a way of having that connection with, obviously without having to be right on top of each other. Mm. Uh, growing food in a shared way for a community, for people, for yourself. I mean, you know, if you've got a big surplus, you could, you know, go and give it to charity or to people, your neighbours, whatever. And that's, you know, quite a nice thing. Uh, even something as simple as like giving your neighbours that you didn't know very well a big bag of carrots. They might be like an opportunity to then get to know them a bit better. I'm sure they'd be very glad to get free, free food. You know, even though you don't need it, it's nice that somebody's given you something like that. So I think it's very much an opportunity for kind of forging community links as well as practically helping yourself. Yeah, it's really, yeah, all of those things have been good for me. I hope other people consider um, getting into it, um, especially if they're in a place where lockdown is um, part of their lives at the moment, which seems to be so many places. Um, what would you recommend people, what, what would you be your tips for um, starting one's own garden if it's small or they've got a bit of a, a patch that they could do something to make it a little bit more interesting? Of course, buying your books. But um, I don't know, <laughs> for, for the listeners, where, where, where would you start? What would your dream be for 
people to have their first idea of what to do in their garden. Okay. Well, obviously, I'd be delighted if people did buy my book, but there's a few other ones I'd recommend too. There's a great encyclopedia called Botanica. I bought a second-hand copy. I got it really cheap. I was super lucky. But that's got like a massive companion of plants from all across the world. And it's got fantastic color photos of them too. So, you know, if you're not really sure what it looks like, you've got photographs in it too. So I think that's very good. And the Royal Horticultural Society books. I studied uh, with them up in, uh, up in Dublin. And um, their books are, are very useful, really good knowledge. You know, it's sound uh, knowledge that everything they say in those books, you can be pretty sure that it's uh, well-researched and written by experts. And also there's a, a series of quite cheap guides called expert guides on different things, on flowering plants, on, on pests and diseases, all that. You know, they're quite thin paperbacks, but, you know, they're usually not very expensive. Um, so they're quite useful too. But um, so once you've got like a, a bit of reading done, uh, the best thing to do, I suppose, is a little bit of reading just to get yourself familiar if you're not, if you've never done gardening before, you know, it's a bit like you wouldn't just get into a car and drive off, you know, in a Ferrari when you've never had any lessons. You need to kind of prepare for it a bit first. Hmm. But um, I'd say the most important thing is to understand your location. Like if you, if you, you can find out where the sun comes up related to where your garden is, then that's very helpful. You know, if you go in your garden at 12 o'clock midday, then the sun, well, here in this hemisphere, the sun will be in the south. Okay, so if you, at that time of day, you know that's where the south-facing south sun is at midday. So that gives you an idea of how much light comes into your garden during the day. So that's the number one thing is, you know, I've seen people try to create a garden in, an, in a really dark space where the light doesn't get in, that isn't really gonna work for you unless you just exclusively buy plants that like the shade, you know? But if you're trying, trying to grow fruit and vegetables, it, it's a disaster in the shade, they need the sun, mm. okay? And then you, if you've got soil, obviously you need to try and figure out what kind of soil you've got, whether it's heavy or or with sandy or whatever it is. If you don't have any soil because you've got like a concrete area or whatever, um, then you can you can get around that by using containers and then you you can you can sort that out yourself. You can buy compost, you can buy topsoil and make it up as you as you need. So it all depends on your situation, but really I'd say don't just jump into it. Think about it. Think about what kind of things you want to plant and you need to look at, you know, if you've got a windy place, is it a sunny place or is it dark? Um, have you got, what kind of soil have you got? Have you got any soil? And, you know, even if you've got like, say only concrete, you can buy uh, these kind of pocket things to hang on the wall. You can make raised beds, you can get container pots, you can get hanging baskets. There's loads of creative ways that you could actually grow, even if you don't have uh, an actual bit of ground that you can dig up. So I, I'd say it's really, you've just got to have a bit of imagination. And if you, you put in a little bit of effort, it, it doesn't take that long before you've got lots of either nice food to eat or beautiful plants to look at or combination of the both. Awesome. That sounds great. And a really great introduction to um, what's in your book, I think, what you were saying there reminded me of some of the things that you said in the book that um, got me thinking about how, how great this is going to be for people who haven't gotten into it before. Um, I think anyone that's uh, thinking of creating their own Druid's Garden will get a lot out of it. So, yeah, um, where can people find out more about what you do? And, um, of course, they can buy the book and all the 
usual places, the Druids Garden, gardening for a better future inspired by the ancients. Um, and they can find out more about what you do on your website. That's lukeasia.com. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, my, all my books are on the website. And then it's also got some of the other stuff I do, like links for my music, um, some of the art and photography I've done, and uh, all most of the articles I've written over the, the last few years are up there as well. So, um, and they're all free. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, if you're interested in that, go have a look, and um, yeah, hopefully people will find something interesting there. Yeah, it's a great website. There's lots of um, information there for people to find out more. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy your books and thank you so much for com coming and talking to me today. It's been really nice to talk to you. Well, it's been great. I've enjoyed it and thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome.
Thank you.